Tonight's lesson is called From Called to Sent. The twelve men who did ministry with Jesus and to whom he entrusted his ministry after his departure uh, go by a couple of titles, right? Both of the titles are significant. And interestingly enough, we have a tendency to take those two titles and put people who get those titles up, up here and say, like, well, they're over there. But the truth is that all who follow Christ <laughs> engage in both of these all of the time. They are disciple. What does a disciple mean? What does the word disciple mean? Anybody know? Yeah, well, it is a follower. Student, it means student, yeah. So, all those things you also said were also true. But a student, literally. And, and so, we know that throughout our lives, okay, we are students of Christ. He directs us, He leads us, He teaches us, He shapes us, He molds us. There's that part of following Christ. Okay. What else do we call them besides disciples? Apostles, okay. See, and that's from, how many of you ever thought of yourself as a disciple? Okay. How many of you ever thought of yourself as an apostle? Hands all go down. But the truth is that both are true of you just like it was true of them. What does the word apostle mean? If, if disciple means student, what does apostle mean? Yeah, that's what they did. They took the place. What now? Yes, Andrew knows. That's why we have Andrew in here tonight. Somebody who sent... To represent someone else. Okay. So think about it. Okay. Christ teaches, shapes, forms us, and sends us to represent him. Now it's not like sometimes people will think, well, I was a disciple, now I'm doing the apostle thing. No, they sort of happen simultaneously, right? Okay. And constantly. And um, on an ever growing in an ever growing sort of way. Apostle is a designation given to someone who is officially sent. Did you know it was used in the first century for lots of things besides religious activity? Okay, An ambassador who was sent was said to be apostolos, a sent one, one who was there. Well, you're not the king, but you've gone to another country representing the king. You're an apostle. Now, we just think of it in Bible sense, and we also don't usually apply it to ourselves, but you are. Uh, I know that if you're a Christian, you believe in what we call the Great Commission. Well, the commission that we've been given was ascending, wasn't it? Go and make disciples of all nations. Okay? That is a mission statement for an apostle. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 6, and then uh, in next week's lesson as well, how Jesus moved the disciples <laughs> from students to apostles, to set ones. And you should be able to relate how God is continuing to teach and shape you. How many of you think you have a thing or two to learn still about? Yeah, yeah, good. That's good. Yeah, a thing or two. And, and, and that's all right. Because he's still teaching us, but 
Don't think you need to learn 10 or 12 things more before He's going to send you because He might be sending you right now. Chapter 6, Mark. The needy people to whom we are sent. Jesus came to earth for humanity, for us. He had something we needed. We needed something only He could supply, right? We don't have any trouble thinking of Him in that way. But the truth is, as apostles, we have something people need. And He has entrusted us with that something. It, always, it isn't always an easy calling to be an apostle as we shall see from Jesus' own example. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. So Jesus left there. Where was there? Anybody remember where he was at? Yeah, he was in Galilee. What time? But, but where he's going is in Galilee to where? Capernaum, yes. He was in Capernaum and he went to his hometown. What was his hometown? Nazareth. They're both in Galilee, but Capernaum, remember, was located where? Yeah, right on uh, the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, I knew what you, you meant. Uh, on the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth was inland somewhat. Okay? So, Jesus left Capernaum. We can put it in there because we know where. And went to his hometown, Nazareth. We know both those things accompanied by his disciples. By now we know them. When the Sabbath came, Sabbath, of course, Jesus and how many of the disciples were Jews? All of them. Yeah, you thought that was a trick question, didn't you? No, all of them. Yeah, they were all Jews, so they did what Jews did on the Sabbath, which was gather with the other Jews in whatever town they were located in that's how you could go to a town that you'd never been to before and you knew when the Sabbath came, all you had to do was find the, the synagogue and you would connect with other Jewish people. That's what they did. They didn't just do it for religious purposes. They did it for social and relational purposes. When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. By now, among Jews in Galilee, Jesus is recognized as a rabbi, meaning an official teacher. Rabbi just means teacher, but it's more than just teacher as in everybody teaches something, but an official position. One who has the authority to be able to read from the scriptures and comment in the synagogue. He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Well, these are all questions Jesus wanted to provoke in people. Who is he? What's he all about? Then, though, they had some problems. Isn't this the carpenter, 
We know this guy. This was his hometown. Anybody ever know anybody who went back to their hometown to do ministry? Yeah, me. That's exactly right. And, and do you think I chose that? No, God chose that for me. This would have been the last place in the world I would have chosen to do it. Because, for one thing, I left Rockford shortly after I became a Christian. And so most people knew way more about me before I was a Christian, about me after I was a Christian, and way too many questions to answer. Sometimes God sends you back to your hometown. He did Jesus. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? couple of comments. First, isn't this the carpenter? We now know that most of the perceptions of Jesus' occupation prior to doing ministry are totally off base. We read the word carpenter and we go, huh, yeah, I know what a carpenter is. That's a person who builds stuff with wood. Right? Okay. There were no people who built stuff with wood in that day. Things weren't built out of wood. <laughs> Have you ever seen any... I mean, and, and in, in a... Uh, in a movie depiction, usually they'll have all the houses, there's not a lick of wood in it, but Jesus is there doing carpentry work. I don't know where he's doing carpentry work because nothing's built out of wood. The word that is translated carpenter is actually the word craftsman. It's the word technon from the Greek. Okay, So, yeah, and it, it means any kind of craftsman, but the most common usage outside of the Bible in the first century of people in Galilee who were called technon is they were stonemasons. Because everything was built out of stone. Almost nothing was built out of wood. And almost everything was built out of stone. Okay, so it's more likely that that's what he did, particularly since his father had a business, carpentry business. It would be pretty hard to have a business building something out of something that wasn't available because there wasn't a lot of wood available. I mean, there aren't a lot of trees in the Middle East. I don't know if you noticed that. Lots of, it's kind of, like people will say, I'll bring back pictures of uh, Puerto Vallarta where I go and there's lots of lush foliage and people will sometimes think that's Mexico. If you want that lush foliage, you have to go to that very little strip of Mexico because that's the only place you're going to get it. I've been in cities of a million plus people in Mexico where I never saw a blade of grass for a whole week. Everything's sand and rock. Okay, Now, it's nice still because it's warm, but sand and rock, rock and sand everywhere. Middle East is a lot like that. Okay, uh, Lots of sand, lots of rock, lots of stone. Isn't this... Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Now, I'm going to comment on this only because there are some views that aren't evangelical about Jesus and Mary and Martha that vary a little bit from our evangelical perspective. So let me defend our evangelical perspective. The Roman Catholic view is that Mary perpetually remained a virgin. 
First of all, I'm not sure why that would have been if she would have done that, but that's what they believe. Uh, what the text says is she remained a virgin till the birth of Christ. Um, so then the Catholic Church has difficulty with, wait a minute, where did he get brothers from if she remained a virgin? Well, so they translate the word brother here as cousin. They're not off base. The word that's used here in translated brother can be loosely used to refer to other familial relationships besides. So on that basis, if that's all we knew, there would be no way to prove one way or the other. However, since, as far as I'm concerned, there's no purpose for her to perpetually remain a virgin, I think she was a human, not some like goddess or something, where she'd be a virgin. Plus, I don't think God is down on sex. So... Yes, Dale. Yeah, right. Until after, but then that can be, she never had it, that'd be until after, or, yeah. So, so again, both can be interpreted both ways. But the more likely is that she had a normal kind of family relationship in those days, which people had numerous children, and she probably had other children and that the brothers of Jesus were half brothers in other words they were the children of Mary and Joseph likely the part of this passage though that's not the point the point is they're saying we know this guy he grew up in our town aren't his sisters here with us had sisters too and they took offense at him <laughs> they took offense at him because one of two things. Either the Son of God grew up in their little town and they didn't recognize Him, or He's not really the Son of God. Those are really the only two things. And, and rather than take the one that makes them look bad, they go like, He can't be anything special, can He? We know this guy. Now, the thing to know about Nazareth is it was a very tiny village. Nazareth would make Shemung look like a, a metropolitan area. Okay? There's a very good chance that everybody in Nazareth was related to Jesus in some fashion or form. There were lots of little towns like that where it was basically just a family that got bigger and they became a town, a village. Very small. So they're going, we know this guy. You may remember... When Jesus called one of the disciples, uh, according to John's record in his gospel, uh, that disciple, when invited by another one of the disciples to come and check Jesus out, said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth's got a poor reputation. Not poor because it's a bad place to be from, but because it's so piddly and small. We can't imagine anything significant coming from there. So Jesus goes back to his hometown, and the people don't receive him well. So he says to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, among the relatives, and in his hometown. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, the phrasing there seems to indicate that Jesus was incapable of, of doing miracles in Nazareth. 
that would be contradictory to everything else we know about Jesus. He can do miracles any place he wants, any time he wants, in any way he wants, in any form he wants. Okay. I think what probably is being said there is nobody really believed he could do anything, and so because they didn't believe it, he didn't do it. Um, miracles take two parts, don't they? It takes a God who does miracles and a person who believes in miracles, right? In order for a miracle to be experienced. And in Nazareth, because they knew him, they knew him when he was a little boy. They knew him as he grew up. They knew him when he did carpentry or stonemasonry work, whichever the case was. They knew him. Think if you found out that the, the guy where you get, uh, I don't know, your lawnmower repaired, and you found out, oh yeah, he's the son of God. <laughs> okay, you're going, no, 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 no. That's the guy who works on my lawnmower. Okay, that would be like this. So you can understand, can't you? He was amazed, says Jesus, at their lack of faith about Jesus. And that's why I conclude that the reason why he didn't do any miracles in Nazareth was because of their lack of faith. Jesus left behind his ministry in Capernaum, where, according to Mark, many of the great things and teachings that Jesus did had happened, where he had called many of the disciples to return to his hometown in Nazareth. When the Sabbath comes, he goes to the synagogue, recognized as a rabbi, that would be a sign of respect, but he was received skeptically and rejected when he read from the prophetic scriptures and claimed to be the Messiah whose coming they had foretold. Uh, Luke's gospel tells that while Jesus was in Nazareth, he actually did teach on the, on the Sabbath and he took the scroll to read from the prophet Isaiah which spoke of the coming Messiah, and when he got done, he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your sight. In other words, he was claiming to be the Messiah, and this is what was too difficult for them to accept. Verse 6, the divine authority by which we are sent. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. We're assuming he had a better reception in other towns because they didn't know him quite so well. And calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money, in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. <laughs> Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Pretty practical advice. And if any place will not welcome you to listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That's an idiom that means don't let it trouble you that they don't accept you. They went out and preached that people should repent. Their message 
was very similar to that of John the Baptist, who had preceded the coming of Christ, and even Jesus at the onset of his ministry, um, back way back in Mark chapter 1, it said, Jesus went into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near or within reach. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Leaving his hometown, Jesus travels throughout the other villages of the Galilean province. All of these villages he visited are up right adjacent to the Sea of Galilee. In order to multiply the effectiveness of his ministry there, he sent his disciples to do what he had done and gave them the authority to do so. He also gave them specific instructions to guide them in their travels and to remind them of the message that they were to bring. And by the way, many of the little practical suggestions he gave were to help them realize how important it was that they stayed on message, that they stayed on point, and they didn't let people distract them, particularly as it had to do with how to respond when people respond negatively to your message. And Jesus encouraged them not to let it discourage them or limit them or slow them down or do the thing that is most common. Okay, Which is, if I have a message for you and I give it to you and you respond negatively, what would be the most human response on my part? Yes, exactly. You're exactly right. You're right on point. To get defensive. You ever do that? Okay. That is so common and so natural, particularly if you think you've got a valid defense. But oftentimes, all that happens is, while you're defending yourself, you get off point from the message you've been given to communicate, right? So Jesus says, listen, if people don't welcome you, just go on to the next town. He seems to be implying There are, in every community, needy people. Needy people mean there will be, in every community, people who are ready to hear a message of change. There will also be people that aren't quite so needy, and they aren't at such a desperate point, and they may, in fact, not be ready to hear your message. You will find both kinds of people. When you find people who are ready to hear the message... Stay with them. Share with them everything you've got to share. Tell them everything you want to tell them. Explain to them everything that can be explained before you move on. But if you come to people who aren't ready to hear what you have to say, just move on. Good for us, isn't it? Good explanation, yeah. You ever get into an argument with somebody about spiritual matters? Really dumb. We've all done it but really, really dumb, okay? Because all you've done is get off point from your message. Or like when people like to throw out questions that are are really silly. Just gets us off point. Verse 14, the threatening dangers experienced when we are sent. When we are sent out for Christ, As apostles, it is a great honor. 
It also uh, is accompanied by great power that Christ invests in those that he sends out in his name. It also is a great invitation to danger and risk. Because we have an enemy, and our enemy is really God's enemy, and the enemy of God's message. King Herod heard about this. Just a reminder about who King Herod was, and why there were kings during the time of the Roman Empire. Okay? Because there was a Caesar who ruled over all political activities throughout the regions that were controlled by Rome, and Israel, Palestine, was one of those. So why would they have a king? The Roman uh, way of ruling, called the Pax Romana in Latin, was this idea of they would come in and conquer a region, but they would allow the local political parties and leaders to stay in power as long as they operated under their thumb. That way they didn't have to be everywhere at the same time and spread their authority too thinly. All they had to do was give the power to some puppet who would act in their stead while they were away, and then if they got out of line, then they moved in and squashed the rebellion. It explains a lot of what happened around the ministry and life of Jesus. That's why when Jesus is arrested, remember, um, Pilate is in town, and Pilate's a Roman governor. Okay? He's been sent from Rome because there is some disruption at the holiday season in Jerusalem, and they want to be sure it doesn't get out of hand. Well, when he gets there, the Jews have arrested Jesus. They have a problem. They want to kill him because he's getting in the way of their authority. Uh, but they don't have the power. <laughs> they have their own little police force. That's the ones who went to the Garden of Gethsemane and arrested Jesus, called the Temple Guard. And they can do that, but they can't execute anyone. They can't really even imprison anyone long term. So they need the cooperation of the Romans to do this. All right. So you may remember that they send uh, Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate says, uh, so what's the problem? Remember, when Jesus was arrested, the trial he had was under the Sanhedrin, which was sort of the Jewish Supreme Court, which also had no real power. But they decided that he was guilty of what? Blasphemy. If somebody that I think somebody said that. Blasphemy. He was, now, with the Romans, how much weight was that going to carry? That would be zero. They could care less whether somebody blasphemed, right? Uh, so when they take him to the Romans, they say what? He claims to be a king. Oh, now we got the Romans' attention. Okay? So they're thinking, okay, then we either need to enlist him to be a king under our authority, or we need to remove him. Okay? But after Pilate talks to him, he becomes convinced that he's no threat. Okay? He says to Jesus flat out, are you a king? And Jesus says, yeah, just like you say, except my kingdom's not of this world. Pilate's convinced. He goes like, I don't think we got a problem. Rome's kingdom is of this world. This guy's kingdom is from someplace else. So what's he do with Jesus? Sends him to where? 
Herod. Yeah, he sends him to Herod. He goes, this is a Jewish problem. This is not a, this is a, we're not threatened here. The Jews have a problem with him. Let them take care of him. So they said, Herod's just a puppet. He's curious, but he doesn't have any power to do anything. So he asks Jesus some questions because he's curious. And then when he's done with him, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate finally realizes he has to do something because the tensions are building in Jerusalem. Passover is on them. And so the time of uh, large numbers of Jews gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And he's got to go give a show of force to show that there'll be no revolution here. And Jesus is crucified. So that's how Herod comes into the picture. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Herod's residence actually wasn't in Jerusalem. Herod's residence was up in Galilee. In fact, there's a very good chance that if Jesus was in fact a stonemason, one of the largest stone edifices, in fact a couple of the largest stone edifices in all of Galilee were King Herod's palace and King Herod's amphitheater. Okay, it's a very good chance that Jesus helped build both of them. So here's Herod up in Galilee. Now, by the way, at the time of Christ's um, arrest, remember, he's sent back and forth to Pilate. So that's down in Jerusalem. Well, that's because Herod's down in Jerusalem for the Passover because he's a Jew and he's the recognized king of Israel. King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well-known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. Still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, in a minute, they're going to flash back and tell you how John got beheaded. But Herod he is, for one thing, just a puppet and kind of a weakling. But he's also very superstitious and a little bit paranoid, like a lot of kings in that day were. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. Here's the flashback. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, whom he had married. Okay, do you get it? This is like a, I'm my own grandma kind of thing. All right. There was intermarriage in the Herod family. And by the way, uh, the various Herods had killed all kinds of family members. Any family member that they thought threatened their succession or who they wanted to be king next, they would just execute them. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, not lawful here means this is in conflict to the Levitical law, and they were Jews. Now, Herod was just a Jew in name and politic, not in practice. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John. And wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. Well, 
Herod was paranoid. He thought if he killed John that something bad would happen to him. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. That's kind of strange. Mark here inserts the story of the last days of the ministry of John the Baptist, apparently placed here on purpose, even though the time sequence isn't perfect, as a lesson regarding what lies ahead for those who are sent out as God's representatives. John's message proclaiming Israel's need for repentance, starting at the palace, at Herod's palace, reached the ears of the king who has him imprisoned and eventually executed. Being an apostle is dangerous business. <laughs> Point there. Fourth, the lasting impact promised when we are sent. Finally, the opportune time came. Back to the Herod, Herodias, John the Baptist drama. Sounds a little bit like a soap opera, doesn't it? On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. He liked to show off. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. So the king said to the girl, these are the how many of you, no, never mind, I won't ask. I was just going to say, some people sometimes make some really ridiculous promises when they've been drinking too much. Okay, so the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Frankly, he didn't really have much of a kingdom anyhow, right? I mean, he was just a puppet of the Roman Empire. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, you think? But because of his oath and his dinner guests, okay, let's be clear about this. It wasn't because he was a person who didn't want to break his word. Okay, it doesn't seem like that kind of character existed in Herod. It was because he would be embarrassed and made to look small in the light of the dinner guests that he had invited so he could show off and look big. I'm a man, so I understand these things. He, you're going to laugh at that? He did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head the man went, beheaded John in the prison, brought back his head on a platter. By the way, a violation of Roman law. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. Oop, lost my nose. The work of John comes to a tragic end from a human perspective. I mean, when you do ministry for God, you don't, I guess, expect it to end with your head 
being cut off. But maybe you should. But in heaven, a hero was returned home and his mission is accomplished. My mom used to say, I think my grandma's the one who first said it. Did you ever hear Grandma West ever say this? Or she was your aunt, I guess. Oh no, your Grandma West too. If you're born to drown, you'll never hang. You never heard that? Okay, yeah. They used to always say that. When they go like, oh, they, the news would say, oh, that's too bad. Such and such happened to so-and-so. She'd go, yep, when you're born to drown, you'll never hang. As a kid, I used to go, what's that mean? John understood what it meant, which was this. His ministry ended exactly the moment it was supposed to in exactly the way it was supposed to. Okay? When you become an apostle, you exist and minister and do work in the hand of God. If He wants you to be successful and bring glory to Him, you will. When you're done being successful and bring glory to Him, you'll be done. Now, probably you'll die of natural causes. But, <laughs> the point is that our mission here has a limited time span. God has His purposes. He accomplishes His purposes through us. But that's really a reverse way of looking at it if you think, oh, this is only going to last so long. That's unfortunate. No, you should be saying, this is only going to last so long, therefore, I better take advantage of every moment, every opportunity, every situation, every relationship, I, I I dare not go like, okay, God sent me out to share the gospel with people. But I'm not feeling so well today. And even though this person probably is ready to hear what God wants to say to them, I'm just not up to it today. Okay? Well, I may not have tomorrow. <laughs> That's my moment. Might be the only moment I ever have. Might be the moment God caused me to be born into this world for. Gotta grasp it. Like John did. Okay? He had a ministry that lasted for a very short window of time. And yet, what an honor. God powerfully used it to prepare the people in Israel who were ready to receive the Messiah to receive Him. To point them to repentance as a way of preparing their hearts to receive the Messiah when He came. What an honor. Okay? And when He was done, He was done. And that was the end of His life. Simple as that. That's the end of our text. We have a few minutes left. Uh, questions about any part of the text that we've covered tonight? Or what we've been saying? Mark, yes? Roberta. You know what? That was one form of execution. Uh, the Romans used it a little bit later, more prolifically. The idea of crucifixion as execution was devised by the Romans as a way of addressing um, those who opposed the Roman government. So at the same time of ending their life, they wanted to also humiliate them and diminish any possibility of them ever being followed as a leader. And so crucifixion put them on display while they were being executed. 
beheading happened away from the public. Okay, So that's why the Romans gravitated toward, and that's why Jesus was executed in that fashion, because again, the charge was king of the Jews. They're going like, we can't let any king just, we can't cut off his head in, in private and have, you know, uh, mysteries and things and uh, myths be spread about him. Let's put him on display where everybody can see him. By the way, um, if you remember at the crucifixion of Christ, um, there were two, it's also very poor in the Gospels, we say two thieves on either side. They were certainly not thieves because the Romans didn't execute by crucifixion thieves. They imprisoned them, might have cut their hands off, but they didn't execute them. Okay? They executed those who they thought were a threat to their governmental power. Okay? Um, uh, zealots and oppositionary forces. Well, they had the crosses up at Jesus' time, three of them, on purpose to execute these revolutionaries. Okay, one on the left, one on the right, and in the center, who was supposed to hang on Jesus' cross? Barabbas. Yeah, Barabbas. Remember, it was it was said of him that he was the leader of them, and he was the one who who was uh, caused to get a reprieve at the time of Christ's arrest, and Christ took his place on the center. But these were those that they saw, and above Jesus' head, remember, they had the plaque that said, "This is Jesus Christ, King of the Jews." And they wrote it in three languages so everybody could understand it. And so the beheading was more uh, a form of execution that was used in other nations and among other people more than it was. And uh, in this particular case, it was also to facilitate the wish of uh, Herodias. Good question. Yes, John. Demon? Okay. I could. <laughs> no, not, no, we, that's a modern usage of the word. No, if the word demon is used in Scripture, it refers to um, an evil entity under the authority of Satan. Okay. Um, now, we don't know much beyond it because the scriptures aren't real clear about that. Some people believe they are in fact the fallen angels who fell from heaven with Lucifer at the time's rebellion. We know there were angels that did that. So some surmise that's what demons are. But there's nothing in scripture that clearly and irrefutably supports that. But that they exist is clear. Uh, from Scripture, because there are many occasions of it. And that there are also actual cases of demon possession that are well documented. Now, they're not as prolific <laughs> as people would think, and a lot of times various forms of mental illnesses and things have been labeled demonic because people didn't understand them. Okay, But that doesn't mean that demons don't exist. But it does mean the scriptures are not clear. Sometimes people misunderstand. The scriptures weren't given to us so that we can learn everything that we'd like to know. The scriptures were given to us to reveal who God is and how we can have a relationship with Him. 
You find that in the Bible throughout the Bible. Okay? A lot of other things are like this. You answer one question in the Bible, it presents five more questions. Like when I just answered your question on demons. Now you have more questions. I do too, because that's not something God chooses to reveal to us. Beyond, you don't want to have anything to do with them. <laughs> Did that answer your question at all as best I could? Thank you. Good question. Yes, Natalie. No, what they, yeah, what, what, what he had been told was that um, Jesus was doing ministry, okay, but they didn't know who. And, and he assumed it was John the Baptist raised from the dead because he was paranoid. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because he was, you know how if you, like, you murdered somebody and then you were a little paranoid, you might start like, you know, I just saw him. I thought they were dead. You know, like, oh no, I buried them under the, you know, under the boards of my house or something like that. That's the kind of paranoia. Uh, yeah, I think so. But again, kings at that time, all right, were like way separated from the people. Okay. So what they heard were rumors <laughs> and stories of what was happening. Okay. People who knew what Jesus was doing were people who lived in the villages where Jesus was doing ministry. That was not Herod. His palace was outside of any other residential area in that, and that's where he spent most of his time, likely. When he went down to Jerusalem, like for, for um, uh, festivals and the like, he would likely go in a procession with all kinds of guards and chariots and everything like this. So he had no real contact with what was going on in Galilee. He was out of touch. He was like a lot of politicians, okay? Out of touch. Didn't really know what's going on with real people. Yes, Josh. Technon, yes. Yeah, yeah, technician comes from that. Yep, you're exactly right. And so again, it was like, if you think the word craftsman. It's like craftsman, if I said to you, that guy's a real craftsman. Well, there's like a 5,000 fields you could be a craftsman in. <laughs> Same thing with that word. But at the time when it was first translated into English, the New Testament, okay, okay, almost all craftsmanship was done in wood. So they made him a carpenter. That's why it happened. It wasn't like a bad translation. It was a good translation for the 15th century. <laughs> okay, but it, it is a little bit misleading. Yeah, they would have to bring in wood generally, yes. Right. Right. And again, it wasn't, fishing wasn't big in Israel. Fishing was big in Galilee, <laughs> okay, which was the province at the north of Israel alongside the Sea of Galilee. And also, it wasn't even big in all of Galilee, but in the towns that were around the coastline on one side of, of the Sea of Galilee. 
I mean, down at the south, where Judea is, where Jerusalem is, is the Dead Sea. No fishing there. That's why it's dead. <laughs> All right. Next week, we're going to uh, continue on in chapter 6. In fact, we're going to continue on in this theme in a lesson I call, What Apostles Do, verses 30 to 56, if you want to read ahead and look for questions and thoughts you might have. See you next Wednesday. God bless you. Have a great night. Show me my heart. Show me where I